Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer, and I am one half of Wannabe Games, and I make tabletop role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hi, Craig. Hi, Jess. I'm Craig, and I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games, and I make games too. And we are here with Liana. Hello. Hello. Hi there. My name is Leon McKenzie. I am the owner and co-creator of Valor, so Valor's Games, and I'm accompanied today by my extremely old and angry cat who wants attention at all times, so hopefully she will not disrupt the podcast too much. Oh, that's fine. It's I'm, I would rather hear a cat meowing than the motorcycles that will continuously go on behind me. She can sound like a motorcycle for sure. She she has all kinds of interesting noises because she is very self-centered. <laughs> What's your cat's name? Um, this particular cat is named Scout. Um, her sister Eve, I think, is enjoying a morning, a morning sleep in with my wife. So lucky. I wish that right? out. That, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> uh, Craig. Although I've been trying to tell you periodically that this needs to be a podcast about cats. What is our podcast actually about? And what are we talking about today? It's about role-playing with cats. No. Got to put that on the topic list. (laughs) Today, I thought we would talk a little bit about um, GMing for players with different likes and dislikes. Um, And that can be in terms of uh, play style, in terms of like what they like to see, you know, the content of the game, like what they like to see um, the game be, uh, the game be about outside of like, you know, everybody agrees to sit down and play this particular game, this particular genre. There's a lot of variation that can happen within all of that. So I'm just talking a little bit about what, how we kind of incorporate uh, unique individuals (laughs) into uh, uh, with their own personal likes and dislikes into the game. And everyone's a unique individual, right? Yes, you are all rare and unique flowers, just like everyone else. It's the pizza dilemma, but on a wider scale. (laughs) That's a really good comparison. Everyone wants pizza. What are we going to put on it? Me, I'm a pineapple person. Give me the pineapple. That who does not slide for a lot of people. <laughs> I'm, I'm fortunately, I'm very, I'm very uh, pizza open or open to many, many different kinds of toppings of pizza. But if, if given the opportunity, I'll just put every single conceivable meat product on top of it and call it a day. Does that correspond to how you run games? Yeah, it does actually. <laughs> Liana, would you describe yourself as pizza curious? Like just willing to just try anything on a pizza. Uh, I, I, I would say so. Um, <laughs> there, 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 there are some things that, that are a bit too spicy for me. But uh... <laughs> Perfect word. Anyway. Yeah. So what, what do all of you think? I like one of the great things about being the person who usually introduces the topic is that I throw it to you to start talking. So I don't yep. have to start talking right away. I think that first you got to understand your players likes and dislikes. Right. So if this is if this is a you know, an issue that's coming up in your gaming, either you've asked them about it and you know, or they told you, I don't like this or I like this and I want more of it. And someone else said, no, not me. Or you've just kind of picked it up in your gameplay, which I like, how do you resolve that? That the first two, at least it's a little bit more direct that that third one, like you're, you're getting those vibes and maybe people aren't talking about it. And it's, it's like maybe a little, they aren't picking up the slices of pizza. They're turning their nose up at it. And 
I, I think that like you first you have to make sure that everyone knows like and you bring it out in the open this person likes this this person doesn't like this and and then work from there I think it has to be out first in my opinion at least I know for me, uh, as a designer, I focus a lot on something that I call core engagements. So when I'm building a setting or a story, I will, I will intentionally go over and pull out like adventure prompts, things that I consider to be core engagements. So like if you are playing in this Linaya setting that I'm making, where we're launching an actual play for it, I actually went to my players and I said, okay, so here are here are adventure hooks. Here are kind of broader themes that we can do. Like we can do this, you know, sort of hunting the, the shade um, monsters who prey on humans. We can have you working with these magical ley lines. Uh, we could have you been doing some like espionage stuff. Um, we could have a big like running a restaurant thing if you really want to do that. You know, here, here, here are some core engagements that you could do. So you guys... Let's sit down, let's discuss together what core engagements sound good to you as a group. And then we'll do some voting. We'll we'll look at what people are saying and then I'll try and incorporate as much of that as I can. Um, and in that case, they primarily picked the, um, the, the shade monsters and the ley lines, which was the, the high interest, um, which surprisingly has interested a lot of groups who've been, who've been kind of testing out the settings. So that's very interesting to see. So it's not exactly what I expected, but because of that, it, it lets me, you know, direct the group's focus. So I, I know kind of it's like, this game could go in any one of these directions, but they're all directions that I'm comfortable with. They're uh, engagements I've identified, I've thought about, so I know I can pivot to them, but it still allows the group to form a good consensus around it as to what they want to do and what they think would collectively be a fun time that would work well for their characters. I think it could be useful to, to within that kind of, you know, like you, you basically, we've got like a checklist, right? It'll just like, like, here's a list of things that we can potentially do with this game, find out what they're interested in, but then also make sure to frame in there too, like what items from that list are maybe not your top choices, but you're willing to go along for the ride. If mm -hmm. other people are very much into it, because you're going to find some people like they, they, they really like a other people really like B, but they're both willing to like, as long as I get my a <laughs> I'll, I'll go along uh, for the ride for B, which isn't as interesting to me, but I know that you'll enjoy it and we'll, I'll find a way to have uh, some, you know, some level of fun. If we do a half and half pizza. Will you be fine with the other half being this or will it, will it so taint your pizza that you don't want to touch <laughs> it anymore? Right. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a big difference between a dislike and then something like, I'm not comfortable with this. And yeah, I think that that's a different topic. You know, for me, olives, if olives, I have to pick them off my pizza. I'm It's over. It's over for me. But I will pick off basically anything else if I don't like it, although I do like most other things. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good idea. They're kind of like a rank choice. Like, uh, this is my favorite thing. I would be, I'd be happy. I'd be fine doing this. This isn't my favorite, but I can sit here. Um, that's a, that's a good thing to put on your session zero, whatever you do, a questionnaire, big discussion, discord posts. Uh, I think that that's a, that's a good strategy because there, there's lots of stuff that I'm fine with being around for. It's just not my favorite. What should you do though? If there's something that's someone's favorite thing, like I want this in my game 
and someone says, I hate that. It's going to ruin the game for me. I don't like that at all. What, what should you do in, in those situations if you have those two very different players at your table? Well, I think perhaps the first thing to do is to define in more specific terms what that thing is. Because you could say like, oh, here's this, here's a bullet point list. And there's one item on there that's like, big combats and somebody says yeah i want big combats another person's like oh big combats bore me they bore me well but what do you mean by big combat do you mean like all game long you know four hour combat session do you mean big combat in terms of lots of adversaries so that there's gonna you know there's gonna have to be a a lot of a lot of roles made do you mean does big combat mean big important like their important storylines are resolved by combat like find out what the what the term means to everybody when somebody says they don't like big combat they may not they may just mean i don't want to play combat for two and a half hours but if we have a combat that's got a lot of adversaries and it's going to be important to the story and it's how the story you know this particular story arc resolves itself and so that satisfies me from my love of story stuff then yeah like i'm okay with a big combat to do that occasionally. And then the person who just wants to hack and slash stuff gets to hack and slash stuff because they get to have the big fight. So like, I think, yeah, like first up is to be very clear on what the, 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 I hate this versus the, I love this might not actually be talking about the same exact thing without, you know, really clarifying it like that. Yeah. I definitely agree that you really want to drill down into a, you, you want to drill down into the likes and dislikes, but also while you are recruiting and while you are putting your group together, assu- assuming you're able, and these are people that you know and have played before, you should be thinking about that first. Like if one of your players loves extremely cerebral, high diplomacy, high stakes games, and the other one falls asleep during these extended diplomacy periods, these two players may just be incompatible. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's, it's not a bad thing for some players to just not fit together in a style perspective. Your job as the GM is just to make sure that these players aren't being put together in games because they both like radically different things to, to a degree in which it would be detrimental for them to be in the same game. And that's fine. Like, not not being game compatible doesn't mean you can't all still be friends or do other stuff together. It just means this one activity is maybe not the best. So understanding player likes and dislikes is super important. If you are recruiting for a new group, what I tend to do is I tend to try and set the pace myself where um, I will, I like to balance things. Like I like to have a bit of everything because I, I get bored easily. So I'm, a, I'm always trying, trying to, get uh get a, get a little taste of everything a lot of different kinds of spices and, and different uh flavorings so i will usually for kind of an initial group i'll set a tone where it's like okay in this game i'm kind of expecting there's going to be you know this amount of combat this amount of you know talking and diplomacy and politics if you are interested in this sounds okay to you then we can start moving forward with that and allow people to kind of self-filter for themselves uh, because you know you want you want them to you want to find compatible players in that case so 
And in this case, this is for like an actual play. So you want you want a good mix of everything. So in that case, like if I'm putting out a recruitment post, it's, it's like you got to be on board with with a bit of everything. Otherwise, you're probably not going to be a great a great fit for the show anyway. So in that case, being upfront and being very specific, I find works very well where you can like some people do percentages. I'm not despite being a designer, I'm not like the most mathy person in the world. So I don't tend to do like exact percentages of whatever but you know I'll I will paint a picture with my words of what what someone can expect and if they if that sounds good if that sounds interesting if that sounds fun to them then you know hopefully they're already on board and they're coming in with the mindset that you know this this game has stuff I like so that will hopefully carry through to the actual play itself yeah I don't think that there's any harm in someone figuring out that oh this doesn't really fit for me and making the decision to go, I don't think that you should consider that like a, that's bad. Uh, that's oh, yeah, a reflection totally. on me as GM, you know, especially if you're being like the, this is what the game's going to be like. They try it. They don't like it. Hey, that's fine. Maybe, maybe you can run a different session. Maybe if that's on your schedule availability, maybe you can get a different group of people together. Uh, or maybe they would be happy if they had another game that was like that and this one at the same time like try it absolutely and you'll see that a lot with newer players who don't actually quite know what they want to do so like part part of that just jamming for new players is going to be kind of figuring out what they do like because they don't they don't know what they don't know so uh and in those cases with the new players you just want to be very open about it's like this is how we're running the game i'm glad that you're trying it out it may not be your thing and that's totally fine. Um, and if you need to duck out or whatever, we can give you a nice send off. And uh, and you know you'll you'll still you'll we'll still value the time that we spent with you, but don't feel obligated. Um, there will be other opportunities, and there will be other other styles that may suit you more. Yeah, you're still invited to board game night. <laughs> and there's the potential too of. If it's, if you're playing a game that's going to have a lot of different, you're going to be hitting on a lot of different things like Liana was talking about, that if there's certain things where you've got somebody over here that really likes this thing and somebody over here that doesn't really care for it at all, but they otherwise really well, they mesh really well for the group, you can schedule for it. Like you're playing a Monster Hunter game, let's say, and one player really loves body horror. They want to see, like at some point we want to hunt something that's like, doing terrible things to people's bodies. It's some mutant thing that's going to infect me and blah, blah, blah. The other person's like, no, thank you. I have no interest in body horror. But you know that that person is going on vacation in three weeks. So guess when the body horror episode happens? When you're going to be missing a player anyway. And you just tell everybody saying, okay, well, we're going to we're going to do a thing. <laughs> we're still going to have the game with you not there, but we're going to play that thing that you don't want to have any part of. So you go have fun on vacation or whatever. You can, yeah, I mean, if, if, if you're all paying attention and knowing schedules and like one person missing doesn't shut the game down, then, you know, take advantage of that moment if you can plan for it. In, you know, if you've got a few weeks in advance notice to say, okay, well, we're going to do the super political game because the, the person that wants to make sure there's a fight in every game <laughs> isn't going to be around. Um, and we, you know, like it's, it, it, it harkens to, there's plenty of movies and TV shows where characters get teamed up and they don't all run around together. Like role-playing games are a little weird in that respect relative to other storytelling mediums where, oh, like every single thing, it's always these five people, always these five people go to do every single thing. Like 
name a TV show that people are constantly splitting up into groups. One person's not on an episode at all for whatever reason. They just didn't have something. The writers didn't have something for that character to do or the actor needed to miss a couple of, of weeks. So they have to write the story differently to accommodate that character being gone. And they do stuff that that character doesn't need to be a part of. You can kind of massage that into your own game as well. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good point, especially if, if you're like that works really well if you run like a, like a weekly game. Um, it's harder to do if you're once a month, for example. Yeah. But uh, that that's a really good way to fit that in. Although, again, if it's somebody's hard line, you shouldn't be messing around with it in a game that their character is a part of at all. But I mean, if it's a veil, that might be uh, it, like when I'm talking about like those the lines and veils, like the things that you don't want to like people say, I don't want this at all. Do not touch it. Veil being like, it's it's a it's a no-go for me. It's fine if it's mentioned. Maybe, I mean, people kind of have different definitions of that. Another thing to talk about, of course. Sure. Keep but, that all in mind. Absolutely. But yeah. like, bo- if body horror is a thing that I'm imag- imaginary me, I like body horror stuff. But uh, if, if, it's, <laughs> if it's a veil for me, it's fine. If it exists in the world, I just don't want to be there in that scene. I don't want it to be discussed explicitly. If I'm out on the game, maybe that is cool with me. Always be sure to talk about it. Right. And the and as long as the player who's not interested in and who ultimately isn't there is like, okay, like, you know, down the road, somebody's gonna mention, you know, like that time when we fought the body horror thing. Um, like if they're if you're you know, if they're cool with the mention of it, okay, that that story existed, it happened to your other characters. I wasn't there. If it if it gets brought up as a reference, that's fine, but we don't need to relive anything. We don't need to do a flashback to the scene or anything like that. I think for the political subplot, that's not gonna be a problem for people, something like that. But, but definitely yeah, whatever for like a, whatever the whatever the case is, right. What about for your own likes and dislikes? Oh geez. I actually am I I actually am the person who would be like, yeah, go ahead and do the body horror while I'm on vacation. That's cool. Like <laughs> not 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 for me. Thank you. I I know for me, um, I, I'm very much not a horror player. Like I don't. For me, like because so much of horror I feel like is based around disempowerment, which is which is like very valid. And I know some people who are super into that. I'm like, I already have to work 40 hours a week to to survive and and thrive in a capitalist hellscape uh, from which there is no escape. I want to feel powerful. I want to feel in control. I don't want to feel disempowered. Also, um, like despite enjoying combat, I'm not I'm not super into like super gory things either, which horror and gore often go hand in hand. So um, that's always been a big kind of hard line for me. I don't personally play a lot of romance either. Um, I think part of that is kind of some of the old uh, old grognard outlooks that I kind of was growing up with where where it's like if you if you do romance you know it's going to ruin things at the table and people will get get out of hand with it which I know is absolutely not the case but for me it's just never been something that I've I've really personally engaged with uh so yeah I'm uncomfortable flirting with my friends so I don't like to yeah, necessarily do that either yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, just like you mentioned, like flirting with your friends, I think about I'm like, mm, yeah, <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, and I think like when you're the GM, those likes and dislikes are pretty important because if you're GMing the game, there's not going to be the time where, okay, I'm on vacation. The game is running without me. That doesn't happen. Would that it did, but uh, as we <laughs> perpetual GMs know, uh, 
That is never, ever going to be the case. No. Either you are here and it runs or you are not and it does not. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you have a really cool group <laughs> that is really type A. Probably not. But when it comes to like, like if your players all want to do cool political intrigue, spying, backstabbing, you know, office politics stuff, and you don't like that, that doesn't, that does, that's not hint for you. Like, what do you, what do you do in that case? How does that get resolved? Well, one would hope you didn't start running a game that's all about politics. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, like, you, if that's the case, you should not, you should not run that game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, ho- hopefully that was discussed under the gate. But if, if, if the game kind of transforms into that, where you're like, well, we had five different things we were doing in the game. And now all of a sudden we're doing this one thing most of the time, because that's what all the players kind of want to do. And the GM doesn't want to do that. Whew. Well, um, I see two potential options right off the top of my head. One is time for a new GM mm-hmm. <laughs> to take over that. And, and maybe that means you bow out or maybe like you find enjoyment in whatever part of it you can find enjoyment in and be a player or time to, you know, okay, we've, the the game is kind of morphed into this thing that we're all enjoying and we're going to have a fun time with the story. And I'm going to give you that because you're having fun with that. And I want us to have a nice conclusion and we're going to wrap the story, you know, again, we're going to do like, you know, the next two, three sessions, we're going to, boom, 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 we're going to, that's going to be that. And maybe we're going to change games. Maybe we're going to change characters. Maybe we're going to progress the timeline and have the characters do something else, but just be honest with the players and say, the game has kind of turned into something that isn't my strong suit, isn't the thing that I love GMing, um, but I understand that you all are really invested in loving it. So I'm not just going to cut it off, but we're going to wrap it. Um, and we're going to, and we're going to, we're going to take down the big puppet master or whatever, and then they'll all have a satisfying conclusion. Yeah. Another thing you can do too, if you're in the middle, um, cause I've seen this happen before, uh, where it goes off in a direction where you're not necessarily against the direction it's gone, but you're completely unprepared for it, um, which like that big po- that big shift into political drama could be a thing where um, because it got so political and so complicated, it's just it's kind of spiraling out of control. And you're you're sort of if you've seen the old like animation of like the building the train track right in front of the train as it goes, you know, if you're feeling like that, it's I, I highly encourage, and I, I see this a lot, where you take a break and you give the GM or yourself, if, if you are the GM, time to recalibrate and like sit down, untangle everything, you know, right, right where they want to go and, and kind of recalibrate those expectations so that they can, they can really give the game the full focus of that. And, you know, sometimes that means you might take a month or two off and that's totally fine because like GMs, Aside from, you know, being gluttons for punishment and aggressively hating our own free time, (laughs) a lot of us just, we want to have a fun experience and we want to give a fun experience to our players. So um, with that in mind, you know, sometimes we just need a bit more time to get things right. Also, because we're the GM, we can just say, hey, we're going to take a month break. Any objections? (laughs) Oh, good. That's what I thought. We're still taking a month's break because I absolutely need it. Yeah, I've done that. I've, I've said, we're, we're going to take a break for a week or two here because this is out of hand. And I have a busy, you know, personal life, work life, whatever's going on. And I'm, I, I just don't feel that I can, I'm going to lose, a, I'm going to lose a handle on this pretty quickly if I don't take some time to, to mm-hmm. figure it out. That's perfectly valid. Yeah. 
I've done it. Oh, yeah. Been there. I've been in games where the GM had to, had to do it, and it just made the game better for it. You get a GM who's burnt out, you don't have a game anymore. That's what happens. Absolutely. Or you have the lowest common denominator game where you're just kind of going through the motions and like you're constantly having to remind people of stuff, you're having to retcon things because people forgot this or that. Some plot point was left untouched or somebody misremembered something because everything has gotten so confusing or whatever. <laughs> right? Get, giving, giving someone more time to, to really put together something is always going to be beneficial to everyone in the long run. Yeah. Nothing's been, nothing's ever been great when it's been rushed. Uh, what about our next topic though, Craig? Our, our second unrelated topic. I'm asking you directly because I can't figure out a way to tie <laughs> with a nice <laughs> smooth segue. Well, um, just as you're GMing for a lot of different unique individuals, um, you can also be designing for unique individuals of perhaps different genders, sexual preference or sexual orientation, uh, races, ethnicities, uh, abledness, whatever else um, you can think of. Designing for inclusiv- inclusivity, um, thinking about ways that we as designers can make the game welcoming to a wide variety of people. Because again, just like everybody else, we are all <laughs> rare and unique flowers. <laughs> I like being called a rare and unique flower. <laughs> I like I like that terminology a lot, actually. I'll, it, I'll give it, Alex a heads up on that, and he'll bust that out in like <laughs> six months, and you'll be like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think designing with inclusivity in mind is super, super important. I think about it a lot, especially with my, my layout design. Uh, it's hard for me to read something where my eye is being caught in a thousand places at once. It's hard for me to keep that information um, in my head. It's hard for me to even like, I'm not going to read a book if I had to sit and look at a one page for five minutes just to figure out what I'm looking at. I think about it when it comes to, you know, typeface and and font and stuff like that, because that's one of the things that impacts me as a reader is my actual ability to get through and and read a design there's there are a lot of games with like i open up the layout now you know there's there's like that very traditional like you have the two column thing here you're going on it's it follows a pretty set organized pattern um but i've also picked up a lot of games where there's just so much distraction on one page like i saw one book i don't even remember what the game was so the background image had text on it and it was pretty well saturated and it made it almost impossible for me to read the actual text that was over it. Um, I think about that stuff all the time because people who have dyslexia, people who have ADHD, people who have other, other um, disabilities or, or mental, uh, mental or intellectual differences that, or learning differences that make it more difficult um, just to actually get through the text on the page. And because I, I'm in charge of design in my company, that's something I think about tremendously. It's a huge, it's a barrier, like an actual barrier to my entrance into a game. Um, and I know that that exists. It doesn't impact me so much. I'm, I mean, I'm a white person. It doesn't impact me so much um, in terms of there, there's no barrier to my whiteness entering a game. Knowing that has really made me think, rethink um, how I'm designing everything else in my game too. Well, 
I, I just found myself making like a list of things to kind of talk uh, to hit on just generally here. And like each of these is almost like something that you could really, you could really drill down in quite a bit mm-hmm. and talk in a great deal of detail about. But um, I think there's, there's speaking as the more or less cis hetero white dude um, <laughs> in the, in the group here, there's, there are experiences there. Like you said, just there, there are things that like, there's, there's very few games that I look at and I'm like, Oh, I can't like relate to that. I can't get into that. It's not for me, blah, blah, blah. It's not intended for me. There's, there's, there, there maybe are games that I'm not interested in. Like it, it might be about certain things that I'm just not, that's not my cup of tea, but most, you know, a lot of what's out there in gaming is um, kind of geared toward the white guy. And I've just, over the last several years in particular with all, you know, doing Nerdburger games and doing all of this kind of on, you know, for, for my games and thinking about this in more depth, I'd start thinking about and taking steps toward doing things that will make the game appealing to as many people as possible. And I think like just a couple of things to throw out there is like, if you make a decision about a cultural focus, like if your game is about this culture or that culture, or predominantly this culture, that culture, this part of the world, this country, this um, this group of people, just not saying that a game about that thing is bad, uh, about that culture or that part of the world or whatever, but being aware that that's what you're doing, that you're creating a game that focuses on that sort of thing. And that's going to draw a particular audience. It's going to draw a particular crowd. It's going to kind of necess- by, by, by its own, ne- not necessity is not the word I want to use, but by its nature, going to exclude um, or at least discourage some people from getting into it and being aware of what that is, what those things are and, and making conscious choices as a designer. I'm not telling you what choices to make. I think generally as inclusive as possible. I mean, I've taken my, the step down the road with code warriors, which is like, well, you're computer people inside of a program. There is no cultural anything. I'm inventing everything from the ground up. Although that's not entirely true because it's all kind of influenced by me being a white dude growing up in the Western hemisphere. But you know, it's, it's, there's, there's nothing in there that's like, you know, East Asian fetishism or, or, you know, like I've made conscious choices to, to not include things that might be interpreted in such a way that, that is to say, of course, that there are probably some things that snuck in and I'm just not noticing them. Um, and, and some people, many people may not notice them, but to do what you can as a designer to be cognizant of the choices that you make and what you do include in your game and what you don't include in your game. And when you include something in your game is being aware of what that says about the game, what it says about the audience you're trying to reach. What it says about you. What it says about you personally. And, you know, like you're hiring freelancers and stuff to do work on that too. Like what it says about these people that you are hopefully are, hopefully are people you like and who like you and you want to present um, like a good game that people that nobody's going to come into this and say, well, you know, so-and-so edited that piece of garbage thing that Craig made Um, (laughs) because now I've, you know, I've roped somebody into my BS, stupid thing, bad decisions that I made. That's, you know, like big cognizant of the members of your team and what they're kind of getting into by being involved with what you're doing um, as a designer, as a publisher. Oh that's, boy. <laughs> that's, that's like the big, without getting into like a lot of real specific things is just like the broad, you know, like being aware is a big part of it and making conscious choices and understanding what choice, what the choices you are making mean as best you can. Speaking on, 
Oh, excuse me. Speaking on meaningful choices, I, I'm the one who picked this topic, full disclosure. <laughs> and now the enormity of the topic I chose is just now hitting me. Oh yeah, it's, it's a big one. <laughs> in, in part because I'm the only person of color on this panel today. Okay, so I'm going to actually use an example where I call myself out. So um, diversity is difficult and it is very difficult to, des- to design inclusively. And a lot of us do have blind spots that have been imprinted on us, I suppose, by our culture and by the culture around us. When we were first designing Valor, uh, our initial character designs are very anime coded. Um, so of our designs, I, I coded the, the characters are in general name scheme and coding um, of the heroes. There are four Japanese characters and one mysterious American transfer student, which is very, very typical for that. It's a bit less distinct for the villain cast, um, but what I ended up doing, uh, because I just wasn't thinking about it, I was just like making these designs that are cool and working with an artist. Uh, there ended up being exactly one dark skin character who was a villain. And there was one character who uh, almost just because I picked a name out of a hat could have been also a villain coded as Hispanic. Both of these things are very bad. Uh, you have to you have to think about these things, or you will very very easily do a bad because of your own biases or just your own thought thoughtlessness. It's very important to pay attention to these things. For example, just again with these designs, I know that they are coded Japanese. I know a wide variety of players could very easily. Um, especially seeing the U.S. fan base and, and some of their opinions on these, they could read these characters as white, which is not, which is also something I don't want to do. So when designing and when designing for diversity, very, very baseline um, inclusive design means using names, using skin tones, using designs, using hairstyles that are not just the, the default or the, you know, the, what we associate with typical whiteness or kind of the, the, the baseline anime look that, for example, that a lot of, a lot of the white audience does actually read as white, even though they're not intended to be, um, you need to, you need to approach it with intentionality, which Craig mentioned earlier, is you have to, you have to think about it and you have to think about not only not only what you want to do, but how it's going to look and how people are going to read it and how people are going to perceive it. Me and my own personal culture, for example, uh, we, we, and this is, this is an issue in, in Asia, both Southeast Asia and East Asia. Um, I can't speak for, I cannot speak for South Asia um, personally, but I, I would not be surprised if they also run into issues and that is colorism. Um, for example, uh, a lot of women in Vietnam will, uh, despite, you know, the, they ride their motorcycles, they will cover themselves from head to toe because being seen as darker skinned is an indication of being lower class. So if I'm designing a Southeast Asian setting, which is something I do want to do, I need to think about that. What is, what is it going to look like if I have a cast of fully light skinned characters who may be coded as as Vietnamese, but they may not 
through their appearance, they may, they may convey certain ideas and concepts that I don't necessarily want to perpetuate. So it's, and I'm not going to say this is easy. Uh, I use that example to show how easy it is to get it wrong. And, and the effort that's required to get it right is, is honestly, frankly, uh, in some cases, more than you may have resources for. I, I'm fortunate in that I make good money from my day job so that I can spend more money to do the ideal, which is to have people from different background, backgrounds right. Uh, and that's honestly like the best, the best solve is getting, getting a diverse group of writers to help you put stuff together. But I know that's not in everyone's budget. So what, what, what else can you do that, you know, doesn't cost you and a whole fortune? It's also surrounding yourself with people who come from different backgrounds than you. Finding people who in their experiences you still have those commonalities and you still enjoy these games and these interests and all of that, but their outlook is very different from you and they can call you out and be like, Hey, that's kind of, that's kind of messed up this thing. Did you think about that? And also just having that humility to say, Oh God, I did not. I'm so sorry. Let me fix it. Um, Taking that responsibility. We are all going to have these blind spots the prejudices in our culture exist because they benefit people and that perpetuation continues to benefit people. So resisting it has to be an active, thoughtful action on your part. Um, you have to, you have to honestly, like in some ways you have to build your life around, around being inclusive around seeking out other outlooks. And I don't want to make this sound difficult either, because this is the, honestly, like, this is something I encourage everyone to do because having friends from different backgrounds, honestly, is amazing. Um, You will, you will try foods that you never would have tried on your own that will, that will, you know, just like, completely change your diet habits because they're so tasty. You will learn such cool things about other cultures and just like hearing stories. Uh, some of my friends who come from completely different backgrounds is, is absolutely fascinating, you know, comparing childhoods and seeing where certain similarities and differences run. So not, so I, I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is having having people in your life who are not like you will enrich your life and will enrich your creative product. So it's just imperative that you, you meet people. Uh, the tabletop RPGs are social games. So you should, uh, as a designer, strive to have a group of friends and acquaintances and players and other GMs who reflect this rich tapestry of, of life and culture as it lives and, and as it exists in this world. Uh, and you can find that everywhere. Um, you just, you, you have to be making the effort to look. It is also so important for you to think about how your game might be an introduction to, if you're writing about your own your own personal experiences and your, your own culture and your own stories. I, I would personally recommend against trying to tell the stories of other people 
don't, don't try to tell those stories if they don't belong to you. Um, but if you were telling your own story, like how, how are you presenting, how are you presenting this to the world too? Which is, I think like, like what you were mentioning with uh, colorism within uh, Southeast Asian cultures, are you representing these other cultures that exist within your grand culture too? Because we are more than just one solid group of people. We are all unique individual flowers. We are all a garden, a beautiful garden of loveliness. Uh, I, I think that what you said about hiring, trying to hire people from who are not like you, who can give you a, a richer wealth um, in your game, I, I personally love doing that because there are things that I would never have thought of to include in the first place. And that is what gets included. You get, you get art and you get writing. That's so much more, you know, just good, just, just better in general. Um, it's not to the say ideas are amazing. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. It's amazing. We, when we went out to hire our art director and we, we sat with our art director to discuss what we wanted for the game. We made it clear that we wanted to have people see themselves in our game as much as possible. We wanted a diversity in ethnicity, in skin color, in body type, in ability. And that's what we got. And it's, it's great. And I, I love seeing the stuff we got back from it. It does make your game better, which from a social point of view, I love that you said it's a social game from a social point of view. It's good. And, you know, for selling your game point of view, it's good too. So it's, it's a win-win situation. Why not do it? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Another thing that I did with, for Moonpunk, for example, I, I personally find it very important to see more representation of um, non-cis men in, in gaming. It's really important for me as no, I, I am not a cis man and I want to see myself at these tables more often. I, I think that there has been historically a big barrier for um, marginalized genders in, in gaming spaces in general, tabletop and video. Uh, and it was important for me to represent that. So I went out of my way to include different pronouns, neo-pronouns. I went out of my way to make sure that they weren't only represented in certain ways, that it was all throughout the book in a way that was presented as this is this is the world of our game. And this is what makes it run. Um, so thinking about your your values and adding them to your game. Yes, thumbs up. <laughs> And, and I've, <laughs> oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, and I've, I've talked about this previously too, but something that I do and might help you, dear listener, is uh, like going to the level of like what I, I usually call it my illustration matrix, a spreadsheet that says, okay, here's every illustration, here's what's going to happen in the illustration, and here's the types of people that are going to feature in each one and who's the main character and who's kind of in a background character, who's being presented heroically, who's being presented villainously, like just little details like that and making sure that that's kind of all spread out. There's a whole bunch of different things happening because you can also fall into the trap of like, well, I've got plenty of non-white dudes in my illustrations. And then you go through it and you realize like every heroic pose is, or, or like clear, you know, good guy in, in the, in the, in the illustration, you know, is like 80% of the time a white guy. Um, and it's not because you necessarily tried to do it that way. It's just like, maybe that's just like in your head. And it's the, when you were writing the art orders up, you thought about 
whatever you, you, you decided like, well, this is a cool thing and I'll just make this happen and I'll write this up. And also like one of the things that I found myself thinking, but I'm going to call myself out on it a little bit, um, is specificity. Because if you get too vague, if you leave things a little too vague, um, within, in this case, for example, when I was doing the, uh, the art order for the cover of Capers Covert, which features a, uh, a white man and an East Asian woman who are like super spies and they're doing cool super spy poses. I wrote an art order that called out that called for an East Asian woman of a particular age and, you know, kind of just a couple of general notes about her. And I didn't get specific enough and ended up with a piece of art through no fault of the artist made choices based on their own understanding of what they could draw and what would be appropriate for this era and put the, the, this ostensibly a Chinese woman in a dress that is sort of Asian inspired, but it's also clearly doing some things wrong as far as like what that dress should really look like and how it's perceived by people and whether, and, and as luck would have it, I shared the art online and I had some people say, Hmm, you know, there's a, there's a problem here <laughs> that people, that some people will see a lot of people won't, but some people will see it. And then I talked with Kiana Shaw and we had a lengthy discussion about, especially, especially because it was the cover um, and it's the face of the piece of the, of the product uh, to basically ended up redoing like two thirds of the cover. Had to, had to just like start over with some other stuff um, and do it, do it differently because I didn't think specifically about what I was projecting onto that cover when I was writing the art order, even though I knew like in my head, I knew this is the capers game where we start to get international because we start to have like super spies go all over the world, right? So we're going to have locations in different parts of the world called out. And I'm going to make sure that there's plenty of people that are clearly from different parts of the world with some clothing styles to match that sort of thing. Um, from the 60s. So like 60s appropriate. And the artist was like, oh, great. I get to draw 60s garb. This is wonderful. I never, I always have to do, it's all fantasy or it's modern day. And just like some, some lack of specificity on my part and some, uh, because of that, choices that were made that were not the best and, you know, made an adjustment. Cost me money, had to do the, re, you know, cost time, had to do the, had to reassure the artist, hey, you didn't screw up. This was on me. I didn't like really think enough about this. Um, and also led me down the road of, of examining a little more closely some of the other things that were in the book about the different locations. And I had, I wrote stuff for individual cities around the world based on research. And I took my research seriously, but I also gave each of those to readers from who have a familiarity, cultural familiarity, or are from, or had you know, visited a great deal of those areas. And not only did they correct some things that I got clearly wrong <laughs> just because the research is not accurate um, or I just misinterpreted something, but they also introduced things that like, Oh, here's like this little nuance about Rio de Janeiro that I had no idea about like part of Rio's history in the sixties. And this got integrated into the, the write-up, which was something that I was not finding anywhere that they just told me about. And when I went looking for it very specifically, I was like, oh yeah, that really, that happened like that. And, da, 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 and we made some adjustments and there's all sorts of little interesting things that I learned and things that made it into the game and made the game richer and a little more authentic for even just like one page little city write-ups. And that's honestly, that's a great example. Like Ken is marvelous, by the way. I feel, I feel like I should state this specifically since um, sh shout out, shout out the awesome creators. But this is, this is, is actually part of the reason why I'm like, if you are doing a big commercial product, hire these people as writers beforehand 
so that you're not having to fix art Mm post-production because you didn't catch something, right? Like it is, it is financially beneficial to you to have these writers there so that one, they can catch any errors you might make and two, so they can give you these cool things, these cool setting notes. Like there's so much, there's so much that no one person can know everything. And it is, again, social games. These games are made better by our interconnected experiences, our knowledge. It really, like, it does take a village to make a game like this. You want to have that that degree of, of just diversity of thought and experience because it will make your game better. Um, and it also, honestly, will not cost you all that much. I, I'm going to use a very specific example. I, when I was kickstarting our best in class adventure path, I very deliberately made one of the characters a trans man. And I did not shy away from that in their backstory. So when I did a promo for this character, I had exactly one person withdraw their uh, pledge in a very specific, in a very suspiciously sudden manner. That's like, you didn't like the trans character. And then I, and then within a few hours of that character going up, I had hit goal. So I didn't lose anything. I gained from having that character in. People get excited when they can see themselves in in their game. They get excited with this. If I see, if you just like hang around in, in bisexual spaces, the amount of times people are like, Oh, that person was wearing purple and blue. Look, they're bisexual. This is our person. This is, this is a, like the amount that people get excited over the smallest things. Seeing yourself is so important. Like I know when I was growing up, if there was a, there, if there was a hero in a story and it was a girl and I was like, Oh my gosh, it's not, it's not just a knight and a prince saving a princess anymore. No, the girl's doing it. I was so stoked. The reveal when Sheik all along was Zelda. Sorry, spoilers. I was so excited. <laughs> And it made me love the game even more because I felt like I was seeing myself like this is a strong, powerful person who is like me. Amazing. 10 out of 10. You're going to get more people on board when you represent them than you're going to. You shouldn't be afraid to scare away bigots personally. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say like the money you're going to lose (laughs) is honestly money saved in the long run because uh, those people, if you allow those people to flourish in your community. Um, yeah. They are going to stifle your growth and they're going to be a nightmare to manage. So make you want to make your game inclusive and open ahead of time. Because like, have you, do you really want Nazis as your fans? No. You do not. I guarantee you it will, it will tank your reputation. Uh, you will have to exist in a constant swarm of hateful garbage and they're never happy no like you can't please them anyway so like it is it is financially beneficial and it will make your game better to be extremely diverse extremely open and extremely welcoming and also to police police your community to make sure that these bigots don't get a foothold which is usually not too hard to do because like if you if you set your brand up for success, then the then the the screaming hate monsters will if they try and come in, they'll make themselves very clear mm-hmm. and you can just ban them. 
And who do you want to praise your game? Like when, when somebody's going to write something nice and you're going to, you're going to get tagged into social media and somebody says something really nice about your game, who do you want that person to be? Somebody with an iron cross in their signature? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Or somebody with a rainbow flag who's talking about how awesome this game is for, you know, not, and how, uh, how LGBTQ friendly it is. And now all of a sudden you've got a whole group of people that are like, love your game, want to celebrate it, want to check it out, or even just want to, you know, press the like button. And they feel like it's for, they feel like it's for them because you made an attempt to make it open and welcoming for them. Honestly, one of the best, one of the best experiences in my, in, in all of my game development, the thing that keeps me doing it is running into someone who says like, your game made me feel seen or Mm -hmm. your game, your game is something I didn't realize I wanted, but I I've needed all my life. Thank you. Like, that's just the best feeling. So be that person, be the person who can make a game that someone's been waiting their entire life for. I don't think we could possibly end better than that statement right there. Amazing. (laughs) What a, this was a great, like start to my morning. This is the first important (laughs) thing I did today and I feel uplifted and ready to face my day. Liana, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. I'm, I'm so glad to be here as always. Thank you for having me. Where can we find your stuff? Uh, so I am, um, you can find me posting probably mostly about food or other things because the world is a nightmare hellscape and I'm trying not to uh, ruin my sleep schedule. Um, so you can find that uh, at Valor Liana on Twitter. Uh, and then our main products and updates and everything are at Valorous Games, V L. V-A-L-O-R-O-U-S-G-A-M-E-S.com where all announcements, we're starting up an actual play very soon um, on our Twitch channel, which is about Valorous Games and there'll be links and all that for it. Uh, So yeah, keep an eye on us. We are doing cool, exciting anime things and we'll continue to do that. You can find me at at Joska on Twitter, where I also have not been tweeting about game stuff really uh, because as Leanna said, Hellscape, World, etc. But you can find my games at wannabegames.com or on itch or drive through RPG under the same name. Uh, and for me, it's all Nerdburger Games and Nerdburger Craig. And go uh, check out Secrets of the Vibrant Sea on Kickstarter right now. All right. Uh, thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which was Avo by StepSax. Thank you, StepSax, licensed under Creative Commons. Woohoo for Creative Commons. And thank you all for listening. And we'll see you back here next time. Bye. Hi. Hi.